This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning, GYC. Are we awake this morning? Praise the Lord. What a blessing it is to be here, to be part of this army of young people that is on a mission, as it were, to proclaim the everlasting gospel to the whole world in this generation. Is that why we're here? Amen. Amen. I wanted to thank you and let you know that I have been overwhelmed by how many people have told me that they were praying for me. Thank you for doing that. And I ask you to keep on praying not just for me, but for each and every speaker who will be talking with you this weekend. Because we need an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We need the Lord to be with us and speak to our hearts each and every time we come here this weekend. So it's a pleasure, it's a privilege, and I continue to seek your support in, in prayer. Our message this morning is entitled, Even If. And if you'd like an alternate title, it would be, I'd rather have Jesus, even if, or I'd rather have Jesus. And as we begin, I want to begin by sharing with you a brief mission report, right? I have the privilege of serving as the evangelism coordinator for Alive, Africans Living in View of Eternity. And we at Alive are moved by this conviction that the African crisis really is fundamentally spiritual, that the answer to it has to be Jesus Christ himself, right? And so our vision, our burden, our dream as alive is to inspire and train and mobilize young people in Africa to be effective in evangelism. And this past summer, just to give you an example, we took 80 young people from Ghana, part of our Alive Ghana branch in Ghana, And we took 80 young people up to northern Ghana for a three-week mission intensive. Now, northern Ghana is probably the hardest mission territory I've ever been to, okay? Temperatures there get up to over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It's extremely hot. And the kind of heat where you feel as though you're being baked in the African sun, like literally cooked, right? And on top of being hot, it's intense, heavy rainfall. And on top of that, it's mosquito-infested. Every single second, you're getting bit by a mosquito. And we had these 80 young people, all graduates, all young professionals, go up to North Ghana for three weeks, right? And these young people took it in stride. They slept on the floor, they took the mosquitoes, they heat the rain, they went door-to-door preaching the gospel every single day, for three weeks. And at the end of that three weeks, by the grace of God, 165 souls were baptized. That's amazing. Amen? But even more amazing for me is the fact that when the mission ended, some of these young people volunteered to stay in North Ghana. And I remember I said to myself, what? I was like, who in their right mind wants to stay in such harsh conditions? I mean, sleeping on the floor, the mosquitoes, the rain. How do you want to stay in North Ghana? And they wanted to stay, to nurture the the newly baptized souls and to keep on preaching the gospel. And I was amazed by their sacrifice. Now, as you consider these young people willing to stay in what is probably... Ghana's poorest region, willing to make those sacrifices, quote-unquote, we may be tempted to ask if they were out of their minds. And I want to submit this morning that they had found something that was worth sacrificing for. And our message this morning, we're going to basically answer the question, is there one thing of supreme value that is worth losing everything for. Our message is even if. Let's pray before we get into it. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we have come this morning to hear a word from you. 
Father, we ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that every heart that is here this morning may be touched and may hear words directly from you. Father, as you promised Moses in Exodus 4.12, when you say to him, Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and will teach thee what thou shalt say. Father, teach me what I shall say. Let this message be yours. Speak to every heart and help us, Father, to truly, meaningfully sing the song, I'd rather have Jesus. We pray this asking and believing in the name that you cannot reject, the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles, as you should have your Bibles, turn them with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. When you get there, say amen. And if you need time, say have mercy. Are we there? I need a louder amen. Are we there? Okay. The book of 1 Samuel occurs immediately after the judges, at the time when every man pretty much did what was right in his own eyes. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read of a man named Elkanah, who we're told had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the other was Peninnah. And verse 2 tells us that Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And the reason being given in verse 5 that the Lord had shut up her womb. And when I read verse 6, 7, and 8 in your hearing, And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Alkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? For a woman in Hannah's position, this desire to have a child was enough to struggle with. She wanted something that she could not have because God had shut up her womb, right? And yet... What made the situation even worse was the fact that her adversary, Penina, provoked her sore. That word means that she literally provoked her grievously to make her miserable. Remind her every day of what she did not have. Provoking her, making her miserable. And that, as a result, we're told in verse 7 that therefore she wept and did not eat. I don't know when was the last time you were so grieved you could not eat. And then verse 10 tells us, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. When the Bible says she was in bitterness of soul, she was in such deep distress, such distress she could have died. That's how distressed she was. And then in verse 8, Elkanah asks a very pointed question that we're going to reflect on in a different way this morning. And Elkanah, her husband, says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Now here was a man who loved a woman. And as you read the story, Hannah was his favorite wife, the one he loved the most. Despite the fact she had borne no children, he still loved her. And I can imagine him saying to her, Hannah, I know that you want children, but I am here and I love you. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Is the fact that you have me, is that not enough for you? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Because he had loved her and kept on loving her despite the fact she had no children. Now, we know how the story ends, right? But this morning... I want to pause the story here because I want us to hear Jesus asking that question this morning. To each and every heart that is here, am I not better to thee 
than ten sons. How would you answer Jesus if he asked us that question this morning? The question being, am I not better to you than ten sons? I think sometimes, GYC, we, we spend our lives desiring things we do not have. And we spend so much time focusing on what we do not have that we forget who we have. And so we weep, we mourn, we're in deep distress because we do not have A, B, C, and D. And all the while, Christ stands right by and asks us, Am I not better to you than ten sons? Am I not better? And we forget the fundamental reality that life is not about what we have, but about who we have. Life isn't about what you have, but about who you have. And so Jesus asks the question, am I not better to you than ten sons? Am I not better? I stand to remind us this morning of one very simple reality, and that's the fact that Jesus is better. He's better than ten sons, better than anything the world has to offer. And there are many people in the Bible who understood this reality, and I just want to pick on one this morning, namely Moses. In Hebrews 11, the us our Bibles there. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible records a very telling account of Moses' life as we look at the reality that for us is Jesus better, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, as you get there, please say amen. From verse 24 to 26, the Bible tells us that by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Now, as I read verse 26, I say to myself, wait a second. Is the Bible telling you and me that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches? Reproach for Christ was greater riches. When was the last time you thought of reproach as riches? Or suffering for Christ as riches? The Bible says Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. Moses had a glittering career politically ahead of him. He could very well have been the next king of Egypt. And Egypt then being the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And the priceless treasures of the Pharaoh's tombs oftentimes included several thousand pounds of pure gold. You're speaking about a level of wealth that's unknown to many of us. And Moses had this in his hands. He had Egypt, the power, the money, the wealth, everything the world had to offer in his hand. And he could have had it. But he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. It's almost as if Moses had a balance in his mind. On the one hand, he had Egypt and all the wealth and power of Egypt. And in the other hand, he had Jesus. Not just Christ, but reproach for Christ. Suffering for Christ. And in his mind, he said, Egypt, wealth, money, power versus Christ and reproach for Christ. And he said he weighed the balance in his mind and said, Christ is the greater riches. Moses had the world in his hands, and he chose Christ as the greater riches. He esteemed reproach for Christ, greater riches. Now, I imagine if Moses had friends who knew the decision he was making, 
They might have said to him, Moses, are you out of your mind? Are you seriously going to walk away from the power, the wealth, the money of Egypt to go become a slave, to suffer reproach for this, this Christ as you call him? Moses, what are you doing with yourself? Are you out of your mind? How can you walk away from Egypt, from the throne of Egypt? And I imagine perhaps his answer would have been, Yes, I'll walk away because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is better. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Thus, by faith, he forsook Egypt because Jesus was better in every sense of the word. And he said to himself, I'd rather have Jesus even if it means losing the power and the wealth of Egypt. I would rather have Jesus. And my question this morning, friends, is, is Jesus better to you? Is he better? And if we had the same choice Moses had to make, would we choose him over anything the world has to offer? Is Jesus better? As I think about why Jesus is better, and we're going to the meat of our passage this morning, in John chapter 6, where Christ himself answers the question. And in John chapter 6, the Bible speaks to us of the account beginning of Jesus feeding the 5,000, that multitude. And we're told that, as I give you a few minutes to get there, are we there? Are we all there? And we're told that the day after this great miracle, the day after the feeding of the 5,000, multitudes came back looking for Jesus. A matter of fact, when they found him not, they took shipping, went all the way to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him, in verse 25, they asked a seemingly simple question. And they say to him, in verse 25, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And then Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And so Jesus penetrates the depth of their motivation. He understands that they're not seeking him because of who he is, but because of what he can give them temporarily. And so as we look at verse 26, we understand that these people came seeking Jesus for the hope of temporal gain. They came because they ate of the loaves and were filled for no other reason. But they came looking for temporal gain. And what you understand in John chapter 6 is that Jesus essentially dashed their hopes. Beginning in verse 35, they came looking, waiting for him to give them more bread, to give them more things of this world. But then Jesus gave them himself. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Come down to verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They didn't get it. And then verse 53, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Just reflect on verse 53 for one minute with me. Jesus says, except we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us can be walking around seemingly breathing. But if we haven't eaten the flesh and drunk the blood of the Son of Man, we're simply living a lifeless existence. And Christ tells this to them. He says, I am the bread of life. You've come looking for temporal gain. You've come looking for bread, physical bread. But I am the bread of life. It's in me that your soul finds its deepest satisfaction. It's me you're looking for, and I'm here giving myself to you as the bread of your life. And Christ tells them very clearly, very cuttingly, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. You've got to live by me, abide in me, make me first, last, and best. Because I am the bread of life. And by the way, friends, this is still as true today as it was when he first spoke it. Many of us try to replace Christ with the temporal things in our lives. We think that if we just study hard enough, just get that Harvard degree, just get that job, just get that six-figure salary, we'll be happy. But friends, the bread of life is not money, wealth, education. It's not any of that at all. The bread of life is Christ and Christ alone. Not money, not power, not wealth, not friends. He is the bread of life. The same way that bread, we eat it physically and it becomes digested, we ingest, becomes a part of our being. Spiritually, that's what Christ is to us. Without him, we cannot exist. And Christ stands there, this multitude before him, waiting for him to give them the world. And Christ says, guess what? The gift I want to give you is myself, because I am the bread of life. The greatest gift Christ wants to give us is himself. He is a greater gift. He, because he's the bread of life. Is Christ the bread of your life this morning? Is he? Do you know what happened? These multitudes didn't realize. You know, when Jesus says in verse 50 and 51, speaking very clearly that only the soul that believes in him never hungers or thirsts. Because everything else in life will leave you hungry and thirsting. Only Christ satisfies. Only Christ satisfies. Everything else will leave you hungry and thirsting. And as the multitudes hear these words, verse 60 records that among themselves they said in verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Underline the word disciples in verse 60. This was not people of the world. This was disciples who had somehow made up their minds to at least begin to follow Jesus. And when Jesus says to them, you must make me the bread of your life, they were like, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can understand? Who can accept the saying? It's a hard saying. 
Why was it hard for them? In the Zara of Ages, page 383, writing about this account, Ellen White writes, If men could have had the world with Christ, multitudes would have proffered him their allegiance, but such service he could not accept. She's saying if they could have had the world and Christ, they would have gladly followed Jesus. But this kind of service, Jesus could not accept. He could not accept. If they could have had the world with Christ, they would have followed. But this was not what Christ was asking for. He was telling them very plainly, you must make me first, last, and best. He was calling them to choose him over anything the world had to offer them. And then verse 66 records the chilling truth. That as they heard these sayings, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. These were disciples, and again, underline the word disciples, followers of Jesus. And when Jesus asked them to make him the bread of their lives, to make him first, last, and best... They said, no, that's a hard saying. We cannot accept it. And they went back. They turned back and they walked no more with him. And they went back because their, their worldly ambitions had been disappointed. They went back because they had come expecting the world. And Christ gave them himself. And they thought it was a gift too small. They thought the gift of Jesus was too small. Give me the world. I don't want him. Give me the world. I don't want him. They thought Jesus giving himself to them was a gift too small. And they went back. They turned back. And I wonder this morning if some of us think of Jesus as being a gift too small. Honestly speaking, do we? But here's the, the sobering irony. In verse 66, Jesus does nothing to stop those who are turning back. He lets them go. If you're going to go back, go. But then he turns to the 12, the 12 who stayed and he says to them in verse 67, Will ye also go away? Will ye also, like the multitude, will ye also go away? And then Peter answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Peter says, even if we could go, where shall we go? To whom shall we go? And friends, what Peter is saying here is the truth that we must take home this morning. Yes, Jesus is better. Yes, he is best. But he's also the only. There's nowhere to turn. To whom shall you go? Who else has the word of it? Who else will be what Christ is to you? Who else is life? Who else is the bread of life? Who else? Where shall you go? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou and thou alone has the words of eternal life. To whom 
Shall we go? You know, the book of John is built around seven I am statements. Do we know them? In John 6, we saw the first I am. I am the what? The bread of life. In John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 7 to 9, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11 to 14, I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. And John 15, I am the what? The true vine. I am the true vine. Now, look at those I am statements with me. He is the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep. We answer only through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. By him being the life, everything that lives, everything that breathes, only does so because of Christ. Because he is the life. Our life is born from him. Apart from him, there is no life. So now reason through that with me, friends. If Jesus is, as the Bible says, I am, I am, I am, to whom shall we go? If Jesus is the great I am, where are you going to turn to if you turn back from him? Is there anything, anything you and I need that Christ does not offer? Is there anything we need that we cannot find in Jesus? Is there anything our soul longs for and needs that Jesus is not? Is there anything? In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and we can turn there. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, speaking about the irony of turning from the life giver. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, are we there? Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, God talks about how his people have committed two evils. How many evils? Two evils. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now please look at that verse with me. God's people turned away from him, the fountain overflowing with living water, and they went to drink from cisterns, broken ones that can hold no water. Is there any sense in that? How do you turn away from the fountain overflowing with living water and try to drink from a cistern that cannot even hold water? It's nonsensical. It makes absolutely no sense. Now, as you and I think about Jesus being who he is, how then do we turn away from him in whom we exist? How do we turn away from him who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul? How do we turn away from the gift giver, looking for gifts he alone can give? How do you turn away? How do you walk away from living water to a broken fountain that cannot even hold water? Friends, turning back, turning back from Christ is suicidal. Did you hear what I said? Turning back from Jesus 
is suicidal. If Christ is who he says he is, turning back is suicidal. It makes no sense. And it's no wonder then that when Jesus asks Peter in John 6, 67, will you also go away? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Fundamentally, because Jesus is better. Not just better, he's best and he's the only. And if, friends, if we are not convinced about that reality, if Christ is not more attractive to us than anything the world has to offer, it's because we have not understood who he is. Because if we knew who Jesus is, if we could look full into his face, if we could just see him for what and who he is, we would desire nothing else. The songwriter says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If we just turn our eyes on Jesus. Just turn our eyes on Jesus. So it's a very simple question for you to answer this morning. Is Jesus better to you? Is he best? Is he only? Have we understood that there is nowhere to turn if we turn away from Jesus? As we close, I want to share with you my own even-if experience. And Siku shared a little bit as she was introducing us this morning. In my sophomore year at Harvard University, the Lord called me to take a year off and to go do the campus missionary training program. And I remember taking that year off in obedience to God's command and facing the very real risk of losing my Harvard scholarship and education. And it wasn't until the end of my year as a campus missionary that that crisis really hit me. And I came home to say there was a visa complication that because of my taking a year off from school to be a missionary. And if that complication did not get resolved, I would basically not be able to go back to Harvard and finish my education. I remember thinking to myself as the year came to an end, Lord, what am I going to do? (laughs) What do I tell my parents? That I had this full, all-paid scholarship, including books and personal expenses to Harvard, and I threw it away for campus ministry? Try telling your parents that. And as I pondered these questions in my mind, I thought to myself, Lord, if, if I don't go back to Harvard, I'm finished. And God's question was, Tando, would you rather have Jesus, even if it means losing Harvard? Would you rather have Jesus, even if it means losing your dream school and scholarship? I mean, come on, friends. Is Harvard going to save you? Is Harvard going to cleanse your soul? Is Harvard going to redeem you? Can Harvard replace Christ in your life? Between Christ and Harvard, there is no possible comparison. Christ is better. Better, best, and only. So take Harvard if you will. I do not care. I must have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Take Harvard if you will. And it was a painful lesson to learn. But God had to bring me there to teach me that lesson. That Jesus is first, last, and best. In a very real sense, I'd rather have Jesus. Because look at it, friends. If you have Jesus, and if he is the great I am, which he is, the one in whom all things consist, Colossians 1.17 tells us, 
the one in whom all things have their being. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Because he is. And there is nothing else apart from him. He is life. The way, the truth, the resurrection, the, the good shepherd, the bread of life. And if you have him, you've got everything. So now why sell Jesus short? Why turn back from him in whom our existence consists? Now the Lord, after teaching me that lesson, worked everything out to bring me back to Harvard. Praise his name. And I graduated this past May. But the story didn't end there. <laughs> There's another half to it that I'll tell you tomorrow morning. But for now, I'll end it here. Having learned the lesson that Jesus is first, last, and best. And friends, if we haven't realized that Jesus is better, if we haven't realized that Christ is more attractive than anything the world has to give, we're not prepared to be Christians. If Jesus is not more attractive to us than the world, we're not ready to be Christians. And Christ himself said this very clearly in Luke chapter 14. And verse 33, as you turn your Bibles there. And we're going to be using our Bibles a lot, a lot these mornings. And very clearly, in Luke 14, Christ articulates the fact. And speaking to us about the necessity of counting the cost. In Luke chapter 14, are we there? In laying down the cost of discipleship. And when you go back, you can read the entire chapter. It's, it's powerful. But verse 33, Jesus says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus say some or all? He said all, Right? And then underline the word cannot, because cannot implies impossibility. Is that right? So if we're not prepared to forsake all for Christ's sake, if need be, we cannot be disciples. We can come here to GYC all dressed up, looking fabulous. Praise the Lord for looking good. We can come here looking as good as we want to look, looking like disciples of Christ. But if we have not made up our minds that if need be, if, if need be, we'd forsake everything for Christ's sake. We cannot be disciples. It's impossible. It's impossible. And part of why it's impossible, friends, it's because of Christ's own example. Lest we think it's too much of a sacrifice to leave everything for Christ if need be, let's remember Christ himself. Desire of Ages, page 131. Ellen White writes this, that Jesus not only became an exile from the heavenly courts, but for us, took the risk of failure and eternal loss for us. <laughs> he became an exile from the heavenly courts and took the risk of failure and eternal loss. Do I need to pause on that, friends? Do we know what eternal loss implies? Do we know what eternal loss implies? Jesus had, and again, the balance in his mind, the glories of eternity on his right hand. And on the other hand, my poor, sin-sick, wretched soul. 
And Christ looked at it and said, Father, I'd rather save them, even if it means losing eternity. I'd rather save them. I'd rather save Tando, even if it means losing the glories of eternity. He sacrificed eternity for us. In his mind, we were the better value. He valued us over the glories of eternity. The adoration of angels. Everything he had. Friends, he could have lost it all when he came down here. Do you understand that? He could have lost it all. He himself, eternal loss and failure was the risk. But Jesus said, I'm willing to take the risk. For their sakes, Father, I'm going to take the risk. I'd rather save them, even if it means losing eternity, being lost myself. And then we have the audacity. We've got the foolish audacity to think we can choose this world over Christ. When Christ chose us over the glories of eternity. How dare we? How dare we? And I, I, I struggle to understand the fact that Jesus chose me. He looked down and saw my, my wretched soul and said, I'd rather have Tando than eternity. And now we fail to say, I'd rather have Jesus. What's wrong with us, friends? What is wrong with us? Jesus chose us over eternity. How dare we not choose him? And look at the the contrast too. We are wretched, poor, naked, blind, forsaken. And Christ is the, Christ is the great I am. He chose this poor wretchedness and we cannot choose the best? How foolish is that? He chose wretchedness, saving us. And we fail to choose the one altogether lovely. We fail to choose Jesus. How dare we? He was willing to lose everything to save us. Are we willing to lose everything to please him? If his sacrifice means anything to us, the answer must be yes. I'd rather have Jesus, even if it means losing everything I have. Even if it means losing Harvard, losing my comfort, my convenience, whatever, I'd rather have Jesus. And it becomes a a deeply lived experience. So when push comes to shove and you must choose between Christ and that job or Christ and that relationship that would take you away from Christ, the choice must be Christ. Because between Christ and everything else, there is no possible comparison. He is better, best, and only. I'd rather have Jesus. And friends, we need to look full into Christ's face. Understand the great I am. So we can know, as Peter knows, that if we turn from him, there is nowhere to turn. He's the best and he's the only. The one who satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. He's the only. In a speech to students at Cambridge University in 1857, David Livingstone, one of my heroes, personally because his heart for Africa is, is a burden that's been in my bones for the past couple of years. He said in his speech, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. 
Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to God, which we can never repay? And he ends by saying, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. All of that time I spent, all of the things I gave to Christ, I never made. It was not even a sacrifice. Friends, sacrificing for Christ is no sacrifice. If you want to know what sacrifice is, look at Calvary. Calvary defines sacrifice. Everything else pales in comparison. And so David Livingston could say, I never made a sacrifice. Because think about it. When you sacrifice, you're choosing a greater value over a lesser value, right? So it's, it's no sacrifice. But with Jesus, there's nothing better you could choose, is there? So it's no sacrifice. I'd rather have Christ isn't a sacrifice. There's nowhere to turn. There's nowhere to turn. And we must be prepared to say, I'd rather have Jesus, even if it means losing the world. Are we prepared to say that this morning? Is Jesus better? Is he better? You're not convincing me, GYC. Breaking my heart. Is Jesus better? Amen. Amen. Not just better, but best and only. There's nothing other than Jesus. And if we're not convinced about that, let's look full into his face. See who and what he is. And then truly, meaningfully say... I'd rather have Jesus. I'm going to make three very simple appeals this morning. Three very simple appeals. And I'm going to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes. My first appeal is for us to realize that retreat, turning back, is not an option. Even if we wanted to turn back, there's nowhere to turn. And so this morning, we, we want to ask Jesus to help us understand that there is nowhere to turn. That turning back is not even an option. And if that's your desire to say, in Jesus I have found the one my soul desires and loves, I cannot turn back because it's not an option. I just want you to stand with me. Turning back is not an option because there's nowhere to turn. But I want to get even more specific because some of us have sold Jesus out. We've sold him out for education, jobs, relationships, anything, what have you. We've sold him out. And this morning, by God's grace, some of those things that we've sold him out for must come to the altar. Because Jesus is not for sale. He cannot be for sale. And so this morning, if you recognize something you've sold Jesus out for and you want to bring it to the altar, come to the front, to my right, and come quickly. Jesus is not for sale. This thing I've sold him out for must come to the altar this morning. I'd rather have Jesus than this thing that I've sold him out for. And you know what that thing is. Maybe... A job you're not supposed to be in, a relationship you're not supposed to be in, whatever. Jesus is not for sale. 
I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. And I'm bringing this one thing to the altar. To say this morning that even if it means losing everything, even this one idol I've cherished, I'd rather, I'd much rather have Jesus. And as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, my final appeal Over 90% of 19-year-old men in the Latter-day Saints Church take a year off. They take two years off to go on a full-time mission where they get no salaries, nothing. Just go for two years and be a full-time missionary. And they don't even have a message worth preaching. So my final appeal Some of us need to give God one year. Just one year to just go. Be it North America or foreign lands, wherever God calls, one year. School is not going anywhere. It'll still be there when we get back. Jobs will still be there. But we're going to give God one year. One year. Right. If there's somebody here who wants to give God one year, I invite you to raise your hands and come to the very far left um, of the stage. Somebody wants to say, I'll give God one year. If there is someone, just raise your hand where you are. I'll give God one year. I'll give God one year. School will still be there. Jobs will still be there. They're not going anywhere. But God just needs one year. Christ gave over 30 years. Can we just give God one year? Just one year of your life. What is that to God? Just one year. Raise your hands high. I'll give God one year. I'll give God one year. To go anywhere he sends, do whatever he says, one year. And if you've raised your hands, after we pray, Please stay back. I'd like to pray with you specifically, those who raised your hands. Let's pray. Our beloved Father, our Lord, we have come this morning. Father, we have stood up to say there is nowhere to turn. Turning back is not an option. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the beauty, the glory of who Jesus is. Help us understand what he means to our hearts and our lives. Help us realize we cannot live without him. So we can truly say, I'd rather, I'd rather have Jesus. Father, we pray for those who have come forward, those who have got something they've they've sold you out for. They've brought this thing to the altar to say, I'm leaving it here. I'd rather have my Jesus. Father, grant them the courage to walk away and to run to you. Grant them, Father, the, the no turning back experience. As they leave here this morning, Let there be no going back to what they have sacrificed for you. And then finally, Father, we pray for those who raised their hands to say they'll take a year and serve you full time for one whole year. Father, help them understand that one year is not even a sacrifice. It's a privilege to serve you. And as they make this commitment, Father, Grant them courage, faith, and zeal, sanctified ambition for you to serve you, to go wherever you send, to do whatever you ask them to do. Collectively, dear Lord, forgive us for not seeing the value of Jesus and help us, Father, to see him as he is, to love him more, 
than anything the world has to offer. We would rather have Jesus than anything the world could give. Because Jesus is better, he is best, and he is only. And it's in his name that we pray and we ask, believing. Amen. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786 Ann Arbor, Michigan 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.